Lord, thank you for another day, another day to worship you, another day to acknowledge our need of you and to move forward in hope and joy. We ask that we will hear from you this morning through this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Yancey, who is a journalist and a Christian author, um, and wrote a really good book back all the way back in 1995 called The Jesus I Never Knew. I recommend it. Um, there are some parts of it that are a little dated, but overall it's a really good book. He tells a story about a woman who was facing a lot of different trials in her life, but some of them were, based, are, were due to some bad choices she had made. Um, she was a prostitute, I believe she was also a drug addict, um, had some kids or maybe had terminated those pregnancies. Anyway, a friend of Philip's met her and was listening to her story with genuine compassion and said, why don't you find a church to go to and see if they can help you? And she said, church, why would I go there? They'll just make me feel worse than I do already. So, some of us might resonate with that reaction. Um, hopefully, this church is becoming, I think, I think we are becoming, a grace-filled, Jesus-filled, spirit-filled church where people are beginning to find hope and freedom from sins they've committed and from sins that have been committed against them. We're all in process, but I think... But that's starting to happen here. And still, if we're honest, we have probably all had experiences with church similar to what this woman was at least imagining experiencing. Um, or if we haven't experienced it, we know people who have. 26 years after Yancey wrote that book, even the respectable people in churches are leaving church saying, church, why would I go there? They make me feel worse than I do already. This is a problem. And I think more and more, we, and at least I, in different contexts, I'm seeing that both the church culture and the secular culture don't really know what to do with sin. We are pretty good at both Christian and secular culture, are pretty good at noticing other people's sin and calling it out and shaming them for it or canceling them or whatever, however we want to get that person out of our lives. But when it comes to our own sin, there are two ways that both Christians and non-Christians tend to typically deal with it. First way, we don't acknowledge it and instead... We don't, we don't acknowledge it by not calling it sin. We actually take pride in it. We make it a part of who we are. We, we affirm it in ourselves, and we, we just make it all good. We don't call it sin. Or we don't call it sin because we're pretending that either we didn't do it or that it's somebody else's fault. And this goes all the way back to Genesis, we see Adam and Eve doing this. They say, God says, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? And they're like, Adam's like, 
you, God, you gave me this woman, so it's your fault, and she told me to eat it, so it's her fault. And the woman says, she doesn't have that same out, so she says, that serpent over there, he's he's a smart serpent, and I believed him, he lied to me, and, and so I ate it. Neither of them actually say, yes, I did, that was wrong. And this is what the human race has been doing ever since. I'm starting to think that this tendency to um, not acknowledge our sin is connected to that piece that we looked at in chapter 7 of Matthew, where Jesus talks about the people who do things in his name, and he says, I never knew you. There's something going on here versus where it's between Jesus saying, I know you, or I never knew you. Does Jesus know us? So a couple weeks ago, one of you in this room sent me an email and asked a really good question that I'm still mulling over. You said, you, meaning me, mentioned trading our values, cultural values, empire values, for Jesus values. And that dovetails with my recurring thought, how does someone actually repent? For sure, coming to Jesus the first time, but also repeatedly, in general, lifestyle of regular repenting. It struck me in the last year with the race conversation that we in the church should be better at repenting by now, but we really aren't in the habit of it. So we're no better than our culture. Which brings me back to your point. How do we switch out these values? Super great, super insightful question. Short answer, not sure. But the rest of today's sermon is going to be my longer guess. Um, So I am starting to think, partly from putting together this sermon series and wrestling with questions like this from you, that repentance has something to do with being vulnerable. First to God, and then to his people. The narrow way of the kingdom of heaven seems to be one of vulnerability. God, first of all, becomes vulnerable to us. We see this from the beginning of Jesus' story where God becomes a little tiny baby born in a barn and is immediately the target of a genocide and has to be a refugee comes back and lives in this little backwater town, we see that's vulnerability, and all the way up to the cross, he lets his own creation kill him. So God becomes vulnerable to us, and the way that we benefit from or receive his gift to us is by becoming vulnerable to him. And not just vulnerable for the sake of being vulnerable. There's a lot of talk in our society today, too, about vulnerability or more often authenticity. And I think sometimes the authenticity that we think we're looking for isn't actually very authentic. We can curate our authenticity. We can make it, um, we can choose what kind of real we want people to see. And that is not vulnerable. In fact, it's the opposite of vulnerable because we're still choosing what what, are, what failures we allow people to know about and what sins we allow them to know about and how weak or 
or not we allow them to, how close we allow them to get. The vulnerability in the kingdom of God is a vulnerability with a purpose. It is vulnerability because of love. First, the love of God, but also the love that God is building in our hearts. To truly love somebody, anybody, is to be vulnerable. And Matthew, in our chapter today, is about to get vulnerable. While his own story is not the focus of his gospel, it is part of it. He intentionally builds it in there. And in that sense, in the sense that his story is part of this story at all, he has so far in his gospel been building up to his own story this whole time. We've already seen how Matthew uses movement in his writing. We, first we saw how Jesus progressively fulfills the Old Testament covenants, Abraham, and then Moses, and then David. And we also noticed in, that, in chapter 8 how Jesus gets closer and closer to the heart. He comes down the mountain, and he enters Capernaum, and he enters the house. And then last week he kind of entered the realm of the dead. And, um, and Matthew's also been showing us how... He's building up a picture of Jesus' all-encompassing authority. So Jesus has authority over scripture, and Jesus has authority over physical healing, and authority over nature, and authority over supernature. And today, we see the greatest authority of all, which is also the closest to the heart and the most vulnerable place, authority to forgive. And we first see it in the story of the paralyzed man. And it's important in this case to note what Matthew doesn't tell us about this story, because the other gospel writers tell us this story, and they tell us about how these guys, there's this paralyzed man and his friends. We don't need, know anything about the man's faith. But we know that his friends have faith, and they bring him to Jesus, and they, that Jesus is in a house, and they rip apart the roof of the house, and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And Matthew doesn't tell us anything about that which is sort of notable by its absence. He doesn't say anything about Jesus being in a house. He doesn't say anything about the crowds preventing accessibility to people with disabilities. He doesn't say anything about the friends destroying some random guy's roof, which was always the most interesting and shocking part of the story for me as a kid growing up. This is another sign that the way someone tells a story matters. Why would he leave out the detail about the roof? <laughs> when I was a kid, I would hear that story, and I knew that the Pharisees were all freaked out about Jesus talking about forgiving. But, but I was like, but guys, there's a hole in the roof. <laughs> what, this, this is the bigger problem right now. Why would Matthew leave out that detail? I think it's because he is personally invested in what Jesus does for this man. The friends bring this paralyzed man, and in response to their faith, the first thing Jesus says is not get up and walk, like he did with some other people already. He says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. This is sort of like, you go to the restaurant and you order something and the waiter brings back someone else's lunch? It's like, what? did Jesus bring the wrong order? Like, what? what does this have to do with this paralyzed guy? 
The other gospel writers tell us this part of the story too. They tell us that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven before he heals him. But it doesn't pack the same type of punch in the other gospels because they have all these other details. But in Matthew's gospel, there are no other details. Just that Jesus forgives this man's sin. Matthew wants his audience then and now not to be distracted by the other startling elements of the story, but instead to be struck by how audacious it is that Jesus says to this man, your sins, we don't know what they were, what could this paralyzed guy possibly have done? Your sins are forgiven. We have an added layer of audacity in our culture. If we encounter this story and we really think about it, um, I think if I were the paralyzed man, I'd be like, hey, why are you outing my sins? Like, what are... There's all these people around. What are you talking about my sins for? We get really defensive. But the thing that was shocking to the Pharisees was Jesus is blaspheming. He is taking on the role of God. Only God can forgive sins. No mere human has the authority to forgive sins. And here's the thing. Jesus kind of subtly calls out the Pharisees' sins, too, because he knows what they're saying, and he says, oh, why are you thinking these evil thoughts in your heart? Evil's a pretty strong word. So he calls their sin out, too, and then, after all the sin is on the table, he proves his authority to forgive by proving again his authority to heal. Seeing is believing, okay, I'll show you. I will show you by healing this guy that I have authority to heal his heart too. And also yours, if you're up for it. Physical healings are something only God can do. Spiritual healings are also something only God can do. The one who can heal the body can heal the soul. So Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Matthew wants us to know it because Matthew wants to know it. This really matters to Matthew. Immediately after this story, Matthew says, "As Jesus went on from there, and then Matthew writes himself into the story. Here's another way that Matthew differs from the other gospel writers. Mark and Luke give a list of the disciples, the 12 disciples, and they basically say Jesus was up on a mountainside and he prayed all night, and then he called these 12 to him, and they followed him, and those, those are the 12 disciples that we know and love. Um, but Matthew helps us to see the process. He doesn't give us the list of disciples near the beginning of his gospel. He's already a quarter of the way through it. And we've, he has talked about disciples up to this point, but he has never put a number on them. He just, you know, there's the disciples that are around him while he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and there's another disciple who says, let me go bury my father first, doesn't end up sticking around. So we don't know how many of the original 12 were actually present for the miracles that Matthew has already described. If it's If they happened in roughly the order that he describes, then Matthew wasn't even present for all of them, but 
He was in the vicinity. So he would have been aware that all this was happening. It's possible that he, he wasn't following Jesus for all of those, or maybe he was and he just put this story this way in the progression to show that, to kind of continue his movement of Jesus closer and closer and closer and closer to the heart of the matter and saying, and then he got here. Jesus has authority to forgive sin, all sin, even collusion with empire. As we have been seeing for a few months already, one of Matthew's key themes in the book is the kingdom of heaven versus the empire of the world. Over and over and over he has made this distinction, and he's going to keep making it through the whole rest of the book because it's a big deal for him, and it might be worth considering that the reason that it's such a big deal for him is because Matthew knew a little something about empire. All of us are born into empire, where empire is the values of the world, our own personal selfishness and sin, that kind of thing. But Matthew also chose empire. If Matthew was truly called later in the game, after Jesus had already been teaching and healing for a little while, why did it take him so long to get on board? Why did it take Jesus approaching him himself? Why did Matthew not come to him? Maybe because he didn't think somebody like him could follow Jesus. Jesus, in his ever-narrowing walk into the human heart, finally strides right up to the scene of the crime, the scene of Matthew's sin, the tax collector's booth. Okay, let's back up for a second. Nobody is a fan of tax collectors, right? <laughs> but nowadays, we don't usually know who they are. And we know that we have to do this, we don't really like it, and we probably wouldn't necessarily call tax collectors sinners or evil because they're just doing their job, right? Well, at the most we might say they're unnecessary evil. In case we need a refresher about Jewish tax collectors in Jesus' day, this is another quote from Philip Yancey. He says, they collected taxes on a commission basis pocketing whatever profits they could extort from the locals, and most Jews viewed them as traitors serving the Roman Empire. So notice this. These are people who are members by ethnicity of the people of God, the Jewish people of God. They are intentionally cooperating with and benefiting from empire. Philip Yancey goes on to say, they became synonymous with robber, brigand, murderer, and reprobate. Jewish courts considered a tax collector's evidence as invalid, and his money could not be accepted as alms for the poor or used in exchange since it had been acquired by such a despicable means. So these guys had a ton of money, but they couldn't actually do anything about it. They had no friends. They were not part of the Roman Empire, so they didn't really have any friends there. They're no longer part of the Jewish community because the Jewish community won't receive them. They are, they have nothing. Nowadays, it's really popular, if you like to watch the types of shows that Paul and I like to watch on TV, to, um, to write these movies or TV shows that are kind of backstories of villainous characters. And then you feel sorry for them, and you understand why Cruella de Vil was skinning puppies, 
poor Cruella. <laughs> and this works great if you're Cruella, but not so great if you're somebody that's puppy got skinned. Matthew doesn't give us a backstory. He's not trying to make excuses for how he got into that tax collector's booth. There may have been some reasons. He may have had some bad experiences that had him wind up there, but he is not trying to whitewash his past or make any excuses. He knows he's a sinner. And he probably knew he was a sinner the whole time, and yet he kept doing it, which is, frankly, almost of a sin, isn't it? We have our sins. We keep doing them. We know their sins. We don't know how to stop. Or we haven't found a compelling reason to stop. Or we've burned all our bridges, so we can't actually survive if we stop. Probably this would be the case for Matthew if he pulled out of the game. How is he going to support himself? Everybody already hates him. When Jesus walked up to that tax collector's booth and said, follow me, Matthew found a way out of the game. Unlike another disciple in chapter 8, he didn't hesitate. He didn't ask to go bury his father. He didn't even tell Jesus, hang on a second, let me close out this tax season. He got up and he followed. So here's a question. This kind of goes along with Barb's sermon. Do we ask Jesus into our lives or do, does he ask us into his? Yes. <laughs> so he said, Sandy. <laughs> Right. For Matthew, it was both. He followed Jesus out of the tax collector's booth, and all of a sudden, we see Jesus at his house. So, what does repentance into the kingdom of heaven look like? Maybe it looks like inviting the Messiah of the very people you betrayed to meet your friends who are as disreputable as you at a, to a dinner party in your own home. Matthew was as morally paralyzed as the man in the story just before was, as physically, was physically paralyzed. In forgiving each man's sin, Jesus enabled both of them to get up and walk. Maybe repentance looks like inviting Jesus to see all of the parts of you. Or maybe repentance looks like following the Messiah to a dinner party at the home of a man who has betrayed you and your people with a bunch of people you wouldn't have been caught dead with before. I ne it never occurred to me until Paul and my parents and I started watching The Chosen last night that some of the disciples, some of the 12 disciples could have actually been taxed by Matthew. They might have known him already. And for them, their ongoing act of repentance would be trying to build community around Jesus with this guy that had defrauded them. And in all of this, people trying to be part of this kingdom community around Jesus, there is, of course, some pushback, pushback, and it's by two different types of churchy people. The Pharisees, 
go to the disciples. The Pharisees are teachers. The Pharisees go to the disciples about the teacher. Why does your teacher eat with those lowlifes over there? Maybe they're banking on the disciples' discomfort. If the disciples knew Matthew at all, they're probably, they're there, but they're probably struggling a little bit to be there. And the Pharisees are maybe trying to capitalize on that a little bit. They're accusing Jesus, and then by default the disciples, about his associations, who this guy's hanging out with. Fortunately, the disciples don't actually have to answer that question because Jesus hears it, comes to the rescue of his disciples, but he's also offering the Pharisees a rescue. He might even be alluding to the conversation that he had with them at the paral- with the paralytic earlier. He says to the, man, the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Then he calls out the Pharisees' evil thoughts. And then he says, then, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And now he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He, he keeps trying to get to the Pharisees, not in an annoying way, although they are annoyed, but to offer them the same mercy, the same forgiveness that he's offering everybody else. Let me in, he's saying. Let me in. Then he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Get up and walk, guys. Stop pretending you're righteous. Part of repentance is recognizing our own sin, that we are just as sick as our enemies, as the annoying people, as the people we don't like. Recognizing our sin and then extending mercy to those other sinners like us instead of offering God the supposed sacrifice of either beating ourselves up, oh, I'm such a sinner, I'm a terrible person, and letting that paralyze us, or congratulating ourselves, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. After Jesus deals with the Pharisees, John's disciples, John the Baptist had some followers, but we know John's in prison, so they're probably kind of casting around, how are we supposed to do this? Maybe they're looking at Jesus thinking, we might want to follow him, but the way his disciples are acting is so different from the way John told us. How how can this be right? So they go, the disciples go to the teacher about the other disciples. Why do your disciples, Jesus, eat and drink and Our teacher told us we're supposed to fast and stuff. They are not accusing the disciples about their associations, but about their actions. Jesus, if you're really showing us the way to God, shouldn't your disciples be much more miserable? Does repentance mean feeling worse than we did before? Not according to Jesus. He says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? And then he describes, with a few analogies, that he's doing something new. Israel has been in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 5 notably, but in other places, compared to a vineyard. And the kingdom that is supposed to come is connected to wine of joy. This is what's significant about the miracle of turning the water into wine in John chapter 2. 
Wine is symbolic of joy in the kingdom of God. And in this analogy that Jesus is giving, he's saying there, wine is still an image of the kingdom. But this is new wine, and it needs a new container. The old wine in a new container is going to explode. I am making all things new. He says that in Revelation. He's kind of implying that here. So, on a practical level, I myself am still learning what repentance looks like. What it looks like for me, what it looks like for our church. But, thanks to Matthew, I am starting to see that repentance does not have to look like misery. In fact, true repentance looks an awful lot like joy. It looks like getting, letting Jesus get close. It looks like admitting to him and to ourselves and maybe sometimes to the community that he is building us into that we are sick so that he can heal us. We can receive his healing and forgiveness. It looks like identifying so closely with Jesus that no other sin we identified with before or that anyone else is identifying with because we all have them, can phase us. It looks like getting up and walking down the narrow way and discovering that we're dancing instead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to follow you down this narrow way. And maybe it's not so squishy and uncomfortable as we thought. Please show us what repentance in real life looks like so that we can be full of joy and freedom and forgiveness for ourselves and to extend it to others. Thank you, Lord, for your vulnerability to us. Please help us to be vulnerable in the way that you say to you and to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.